Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Dr. W.E. Sangster was a passionate and powerful Methodist minister who ministered for the Lord in early 20th century Great Britain. His preaching gift opened many doors for him to travel to various countries. And uh, before he passed away in 1960, Sangster came to the United States for a speaking engagement. While he was here, someone asked him, What impressed him most about our country? They were probably wanting this minister to compare or contrast America to other countries that he had been to. Uh, Dr. Sangster replied, You Americans seem to have more of everything than anyone else. You have more cars more televisions, more refrigerators, more of everything. In fact, I've noticed you also have more books on how to be happy than everybody else, too. (laughs) We're continuing our series through the parables of Jesus today called Once Upon a Time. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to Luke chapter 12 and take out the sermon notes in your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers can loan you one of ours. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who cared more about his wealth than his soul. However, the big idea of the story is just the opposite. And that is that the salvation of your soul is more important than the worth of your wealth. The salvation of your soul is more important than the worth of your wealth. The New Testament word for parable we've been learning comes from two Greek words that together mean to throw alongside. So, in other words, what Jesus did when he told parables is he would take an earthly illustration and a spiritual truth, a heavenly truth, and wrap it up together in a story. Or, more simply put, a parable is an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. And we've been learning that the Lord loved to use stories during his teaching ministry to transform black and white truths into high-definition color. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool so that we would not sell our souls in pursuit of earthly possessions. Now, if you would, look at your Bibles in Luke chapter 12. Before we read today's passage, I want to give you a little bit of context. Uh, If you notice at the beginning of chapter 12, before the parable, in verses 4 through 7, Jesus tells 
his large audience, it says in verse 1, when so many thousands of people had gathered together. So he's got quite an audience listening to him here today. Well, he says in verses 4 through 7 that they should fear God because he has the authority to cast souls into hell and at the same time not fear for their daily needs because we are of more value than the sparrows he already provides for. Next, in verses 8 through 9, Jesus says, Those who deny the Lord before men will find themselves denied before the angels when they stand before the Lord. Now, after the parable, if you would look at verses 22 to 31, Jesus urges his followers to not be anxious about food, clothes, etc., but instead to seek first his kingdom. So what we have throughout chapter 12 on both sides of the parable and then through the parable are two themes. First of all, how to think about our material needs here on earth, and secondly, being prepared to stand before the Lord at any moment. Those are the two themes of chapter 12. And with that, if you would, look at verses 13 to 15. Someone in the crowd, as Jesus was teaching, said to him, Teacher, teacher, tell, tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here's number one on your outline. The first point is this, the sins of greed and materialism are costly to the soul. The sins of greed and materialism are costly to the soul. The dictionary defines greed as excessive or predatory desire for wealth or material possessions. Materialism is defined by the dictionary as the preoccupation, excuse me, the preoccupation or emphasis on material objects or comforts as opposed to spiritual needs. One of life's events at which both of these sins, greed and materialism, tend to rear their ugly heads is when a loved one dies and there's an estate to be divided up. Has anyone seen that before? I have, and it's very unfortunate. So notice in verse 13, this man presses up in front of the thousands and gets near enough to Jesus so he can be heard and raises his hand and says, Teacher, help me out. I've got a problem. Now, it was common in those days for someone to seek assistance from a rabbi uh, to settle some legal dispute. But who was this inquirer? Uh, through deduction, commentators believe that he was most likely a Pharisee. And here's why. In Luke's gospel, the disciples almost always address Jesus as Lord or Master. On the other hand, every time a Pharisee, or at least 10 out of the 11 times, uh, 
Pharisees addressed Jesus. They called him teacher. So most likely, this was a Pharisee or a Jewish leader. We also know from Luke 16, verse 14, you can jot that down if you want and look at it later, uh, that's where Luke tells us the Pharisees were lovers of money. This cry for help is probably coming from the younger of two brothers because wills in the first century Jewish culture required the consent of the older sibling before it could be executed. How woefully tragic, though, that while Jesus is declaring the eternal truths of the gospel, this man could only think about the stuff of this world. Commentator J.C. Riles says this about the young man. Quote, The natural heart of man is always the same. Even Christ's own preaching did not arrest the attention of all his hearers. We must not be surprised to find worldliness and inattention in the middle of church congregations. End quote. Look at verse 15 with me. Jesus changes his teaching based on the Pharisees' question. So he decides to call an audible and address the very root issue in this man's heart. So he says in verse 15, Take care and be on your guard. Take care could be rendered, watch out, or pay attention, or take notice. And then the verb, be on your guard, it comes from a Greek word that means to stand guard or to protect yourself from something. These verbs, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that they paint a picture of covetousness as a predator lurking in the weeds or in the woods as you walk down a path, waiting to pounce on you. And Jesus is saying, watch out. Be on guard. It'll catch you by surprise, this sin called covetousness. So what is covetousness? It's a pretty hard word to say, and certainly not one that's common in our vernacular. Uh, It is a compound word in the Greek text made up of two smaller words. The word for more and the word for to have. The New Testament is almost, uh, in the New Testament, excuse me, the word covetousness almost always refers to the sinful desire to have more stuff. Either due to discontentment, or by means of dishonesty, or both. So where does covetousness come from? Well, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, coveting, envy, 
etc. In other words, covetousness overflows out of our inherited sin nature. We covet because we are born sinners. We envy because we are not content with what God has given us. This reminds me of a story I once read about a little girl who accompanied her mother to a country store, where after her mother made a purchase, uh, the clerk invited the girl to grab a handful of candy out of a large candy jar. When the youngster hesitated, the clerk asked, What's the matter? Don't you like candy? Uh, To which the child nodded timidly in the affirmative. So the adult clerk then kindly put his hand into the jar and dropped a generous portion of sweets into the little girl's handbag. As the mother and the little girl were uh, going out to the parking lot and getting into their car to head home, the mother asked her daughter why she had not put her hand into the candy jar when the clerk first said it was okay to do so. Her daughter replied, because his hand was bigger than mine. (laughs) It's a cute story, and I laughed when I first read it, but I hope you don't miss the fact that no one needs to be taught how to be greedy. The sin nature that we're born with already equips us with this ability. Now, the Bible is clear that money is, and material possessions are morally and spiritually neutral. Having lots of money does not make someone wicked, just like being poor doesn't make someone righteous. Uh, the scriptures include references to godly wealthy people and ungodly wealthy people, as well as godly poor people and ungodly poor people. In other words, having money and possessions is not sinful, but the love of money is. And a key reference on that is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money and possessions is sinful. Now, let me make some clarifications before we move further into this text. Just from a sort of a macro level, a high level view, I want to make two subpoints here about wealth and possessions. Uh, and so, clarifications on wealth. Letter A The Lord gives us good things to enjoy, not love. The Lord gives us good things to enjoy, not love. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, the apostle challenges. All rich believers, which, by the way, I think applies to all middle to upper class Americans. He says to all rich believers that they should not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He goes on to say that if the Lord has blessed us with material possessions, we should... Thank the Lord and and be generous. But it raises a question. How can we know if 
we're loving something that God has given us instead of enjoying it. Or at least I thought you might ask that question, so I asked it and wrestled and prayed through the answer. And here's, here's what I think the answer is. If you have to have it to be happy, then you're loving it instead of enjoying it. If you have to have it to be happy, then you're loving that blessing instead of enjoying it. The scriptures unashamedly call loving anything more than Jesus idolatry. We are capable as sinners of idolat- excuse me, uh, idolizing spouses, friends, children, grandchildren, stuff, anything. We can love more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should love the Lord and use the stuff he gives us, but if we start loving stuff, we'll try to use the Lord to give us more. And that's not, that's not the kind of business he's into. So the Lord gives us good things to enjoy, but not to love. Next, letter B, the second clarification on wealth, and that is that wealth is worthless on the day of judgment. Wealth is worthless on the day of judgment. Enjoy it? Yes, we we can enjoy it. The Lord gives us wealth. But remember, it can do nothing for you when you stand before the Lord someday. In Proverbs chapter 11, it says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. And then in verse 28 of Proverbs 11, whoever trusts in them will fall. It's a reminder to apply an eternal and spiritual perspective to our wealth and possessions. That they cannot buy favor with God, they cannot pay for our sins, and they cannot come with us into the afterlife. Now, there is some encouragement, though, I think that's lying just under the surface here, verses 13, 14, and 15. And I don't want you to miss this. And and here it is. Unlike the world, the Lord doesn't gauge our value or importance by our material wealth. And what a blessing it is When Jesus says in verse 15, one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Oh, how wonderful. Can you imagine if your salvation or favor with God depended on how much stuff or how much money you had? Can you imagine how stressful a life that would be? How much comparison there, how much more comparing we'd be doing than we already do? This means that regardless of whether your life goes from rags to riches or riches to rags, the Lord still loves you the same. He still wants a personal relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. Because he does not evaluate or value what the world does. He doesn't look at the outward appearance as... 
the Lord said through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. What a relief that we don't have to earn the Lord's affection by earning a certain salary, title, or status. And what a relief that our life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And so, the salvation of your soul is more important than the worth of your wealth. Now, because Jesus came to earth to bring men to God, instead of bringing riches to men, he chose to stay out of this legal dispute that this young brother had brought to his attention. Instead, though, the Lord uses his spiritual x-ray vision to see straight through to the soul of this man. And what he saw behind the sternum of this Pharisee was a man who loved religion and a heart that longed for more money. And so Jesus tells a story. Let's look at verses 16 to 19. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Here's number two on your outline. Fools think about wealth in worldly ways. Fools think about wealth in worldly ways. Now, just as a matter of review, so that we can compare and contrast this parable to a couple others that we've already studied, you might remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus elevated the Samaritan as a model citizen for us to follow. And then, uh, I think it was last week, we studied the parable of the Midnight Friend. He set up the host, Jesus did, as a positive example of persistence in prayer. But in this parable, it's different in that Jesus gives us a negative example. Not to follow. Jesus is unequivocally saying through this parable, Don't be like the fool. Well, what did, the, what did the fool do wrong? Well, the first thing that he did wrong was he ignored God's role in his work. He thought he did all the work that produced the plentiful harvest and allowed his barns to overflow. But notice in verse 16, uh, we just have to practice a little good grammar here, the subject of the sentence is the land, not the man. It says the land produced plentifully. Like the Pharisee's inheritance, the rich man's prosperity emanated from a source other than himself. It was the Lord who made the soil, sent the rain, and the sunshine needed to grow the crops. 
but he forgot that or couldn't see it because he was blinded by his pride. Years ago, I heard a joke about two scientists who discovered how to clone humans, and so they were proud of themselves, and for this reason, they decided to challenge Jesus. So they told Jesus, we don't need you anymore. We figured out how to make humans on our own. Okay, said Jesus, then let's have a man-making contest. All right, said the scientist, we'll start a timer, and the first one done wins. So as soon as the contest began, the two scientists knelt down to the ground and started molding dirt to form a man, just as God did back in Genesis. But about five seconds into the competition, Jesus yelled at the referees and the scientists, time out, time out, whoa, whoa, time out, I'm calling time out, challenge flag. What's wrong, said the scientist. And Jesus said, Get your own dirt. <laughs> Just because God makes all the dirt, you know? Okay. Just to make sure. So, do we, we want to go back to Genesis? <laughs> we need to remember that if the Lord doesn't put breath in our lungs, strength in our bones, intelligence in our brains, we can't earn a single cent. If the Lord's protection is not over us as we drive to work, we can't get there safely. If the Lord does not allow us to maintain favor with our employer, we can't keep a job. Now, there are two lies that the fool believes about material possessions. This is letter A and B. There's a lie, and then I'm going to contrast it or juxtapose it with a truth. The lie is, the first one, letter A, fools believe everything they have belongs to them. They believe everything they have belongs to them. Notice in verse 18, I have it underlined in my Bible, the repetition of these possessive pronouns. My barns, my grain, my goods... You see, the fool does not factor into the equation his productivity. He doesn't factor, excuse me, God into the equation of his productivity. He ignored or was unaware of Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5, verse 19. That's where Solomon said, When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. The wisest man in the world at the time came to that conclusion. Now notice how this atheistic selfishness affects his decision-making in verses 18 to 19. I will, I will, I will, I will. So the fool believes everything he has belongs to him. But God says everything we have belongs to him. We see several examples of this in the scriptures, references to this. Uh, One that comes to mind is 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. This is where David prayed for the people's temple offering, and he said this. Here's a part of his prayer. Dear Lord, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Both riches and honor come from you. But who am I 
and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give only what you first gave us. First Chronicles chapter 29. So this is the foundation, this, this truth that God owns everything. It is the foundation of biblical stewardship. We are not owners, but stewards entrusted with managing God's stuff and doing so wisely. Here's the next lie that the fool believes. Letter B on your outline. Fools believe increased blessing means increased spending. Fools believe increased blessing means increased spending. Now, it's worth noting that in the Psalms and the Proverbs, fools are not people with diminished mental ability. Uh, Actually, instead, they are individuals who live life as though God doesn't exist or as though God has never spoken. As a result, this fool retired early so he could spend even more of his life pursuing selfish desires. He lived by the short-sighted motto of, hey, you only live once, man. You got to get everything you can while you can. Notice, though, how the fool excluded the Lord from his labor, which then led him to exclude the Lord from his leisure as well. Well, what does God's word say? God says increased blessing means increased giving. The Lord blesses so we can give more. This is demonstrated in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time, and it's a long passage, but the Lord expects us to give more when he blesses us because it's an acknowledgement that he's the source of the blessing. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's a fascinating passage, for, I mean, the, uh, one of my most interesting one, uh, passages in the Old Testament for me, because it's a crossroad or a pivot in the journey of the people of Israel. They had been in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, living on manna and scraps and water, uh, while they underwent their consequence for uh, doubting the Lord. Well, now they are in Deuteronomy 8, just about to enter into the promised land, where Everything's going to change. They're going to be blessed out of their minds. They're going to have so much stuff, they aren't going to know what to do with it. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord gives a lengthy pep talk to his people as they prepare to transition from wilderness to promised land. And I'll paraphrase for the sake of time. He says, this land is going to have fertile soil, lots of water, an abundance of crops, from which you will lack nothing. It's it's rags to riches is what it's going to be for them. Then the Lord says, when you have eaten and you are full and you have built good houses and your herds multiply and all your gold and silvers multiplied, don't forget the Lord. He says, don't forget me. Don't forget how I brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget how I sustained you in the wilderness 
And literally, he says, your, your feet did not swell and your clothes did not wear out when you were in the wilderness. The Lord continues, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might from my hands got me all this wealth. Now, why did the Lord tell his people on the edge of the wilderness, about to cross over into the promised land, don't forget me and don't start thinking that your might and your power got you all this wealth. Because he knew that his people would forget him. Because he knew that his people would try to take credit. And they did. Because we are prone to forget, this is a great reminder that if the Lord blesses you with a new job, if he blesses you with a promotion or a pay raise, make sure you remember where that blessing came from. Make sure you remember your wilderness years. Make sure you remember how hard you prayed and begged God to open a door for you or to help you finish school or to get you a job interview. Now, there's some encouragement in these verses as well. Jesus is giving us the answer key to a test that every one of us is going to have to take on the day we die. The parable reveals Jesus' desire to see us invest our lives in what really matters, and that's a redemptive relationship with him that focuses on eternity. So he's telling us and he's telling his audience, don't waste your life on material possessions or you will fail the test when you stand before the Father. Instead, put all your stock in eternal things and invest in a relationship with me. That's why the big idea is the salvation of your soul is worth more than the worth of your wealth. It's more important than the worth of your wealth. Well, let's look at the last two verses here, verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's number three in your outline. Greed and materialism are poor investment strategies. Greed and materialism are poor investment strategies. Verse 20, there's a sobering statement from God. This night, your soul will be required of you. Someone uh, I, I read once with a sense of humor had this simple quip engraved on their tombstone. Quote, I expected this, but not just yet. End quote. <laughs> That's how it is with death, isn't it? We don't know when, we don't know where, 
or how it will come calling, but it will come. Often when we least expect it. Notice in verse 20, another reason that Jesus gives for not pursuing greed and materialism is that the things you've prepared, who are they going to... Since you can't take them with you, someone else is going to get them who did not work hard to get them, like your children or your grandchildren. Material possessions cannot be taken into eternity because of what they are. They are material. Death is when the immaterial soul separates from the material body so that it can pass into the spiritual realm. There is no UPS store or storage units in heaven or hell. There, there is no way to send ahead your stuff or to call back and say, can you send it to me, kids, so I can have it in the new world? It's not possible. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. According to Jesus, what's the solution? Well, he says, uh, the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God will experience what this fool did. But Jesus also says in Matthew 6.20, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so he's saying, be generous towards kingdom work. Be generous to the Lord. Because he will take better care of your investment than the world can. Now, one question that I found gnawing at me as I studied this parable this week is, how can we know whether we're greedy or materialistic? I don't know, maybe some of you are thinking, no, 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 Pastor Kerry, don't ask that question. That's okay. We don't need to know the answer to that question. That's okay. We can just... We can just go to the closing story that you always like to tell and close in prayer, and we're good. But, you know, when I'm writing these sermons, I just have this nagging, gnawing sense that there are some people that are going to listen who try to get themselves off the hook. They're going to try and go, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm good. Because I'm not rich, or I'm not a farmer. I'm still working. I haven't retired. I'm not relaxed, I don't drink, and I'm not merry. So, I guess I'm off the hook with this parable. But I just wasn't satisfied with that. So, here's letters A, B, and C under point number three. You may be guilty of greed and materialism if, letter A, you are willing to sin to accumulate more wealth. So I'm trying to answer the question, how can you know? How can you do a really good heart check to make sure you're not just kind of being blind and giving yourself a pass when the Lord may be wanting you to go, no, 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 no. You do struggle with this. You need to give some attention to this. If you are willing to sin to accumulate more wealth, 
Proverbs 16, 8 says, Better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So if you're willing to bend the rules, to cheat on your taxes, to take advantage of others, or manipulate your way up the corporate ladder, or to cheat on your tithe so you can get that thing you wanted sooner, then you're struggling with greed and materialism. Uh, Letter B, you may be guilty of greed and materialism if your standard of living prevents you from giving back to the Lord. If your standard of living prevents you from giving back to the Lord what he wants from you. In Haggai chapter 1, the Lord rebukes the people of Israel for living in, quote, paneled houses. It was a term used in those days for luxury homes, basically. And the reason why the Lord rebuked his people is that they had spent so much time in Haggai chapter 1 building really nice homes for themselves but they had left his temple in disrepair. And so in essence, and I'm paraphrasing here, the Lord basically says, why do you get to have a fancy house while my house is still in shambles? You've not finished the repairs and rebuilding it. Then in Malachi chapter 1, in another season of time for the people of Israel, the Lord calls, calls out the fact that his people were giving their best offerings to the rich and famous but giving their leftovers to God. And so he says, why does your governor, a politician, get the best animal from your flock for a feast, but then you bring the blemished animals that have all sorts of deformities to make an offering to me? What's up with that? Why am I getting the leftovers? And then in Malachi 3, the Lord flat out accuses them of robbing him by not bringing their tithes and offerings to him. Now, you've heard me say before that the Lord wants us to put tithes at the top of our budget and then set our lifestyle based on what's left over. There are certainly some rare exceptions to this in which I think the Lord is understanding and patient. um, Where... Not giving back to the Lord as much as he should get, or maybe not giving anything at all for a season, I think is okay. Uh, Just a couple examples that come to mind would be an unusually low income. Like if you're earning poverty level salary, and yet you're living in a place where that just doesn't even cut it as far as cost of living, I think the Lord understands that. Or if you have unusually high expenses that are beyond your control, like medical debt or legal bills, Maybe a bad divorce where you got slapped with credit card debt that your spouse left you with. Or unemployment. Uh, The Lord, I think, understands. When situations like this arise, I think the Lord is pleased when we give what we can while we can, while doing our best to try and raise our giving up to biblical standards over time. Uh, Letter C. You may be guilty of greed and materialism if you look forward to your next purchase more than eternity. 
if you look forward to your next purchase more than eternity. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul urges Christ followers to set their minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. If you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you don't long to be with him, you need to do some heart surgery. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so we could use him to get to heaven. He died for something much bigger than that, to reconcile us to the Father through a redemptive relationship with the Son. Uh, John Piper clarifies this even further when he wrote, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. Because the point of getting to heaven is getting to be with the Lord. And so, if all you think about is getting more stuff and the next thrill and the next experience here on earth, and you don't long for the Lord to come or long to be with him, I think the scriptures would say, you need to do some heart surgery. Well, how do we apply this text? Uh, Psalm 111 verse 10 says, those who practice God's word will gain wisdom, and we all could benefit from more wisdom. And so, number one, the first application that comes to mind, neutralize the threat of greed with a satisfaction in Christ that produces generosity. I'm sorry, this is a little longer than other applications I've given. I tried to make it as succinct as I could. But neutralize the threat of greed with a satisfaction in Christ that produces generosity. Here's why I struggled to make this long. Originally, I was going to put down, neutralize the threat of greed with generosity. But as I reflected on the godliest, most content, most generous believers I've had the privilege of knowing over the years, I realized that they weren't motivated to be generous just because they were supposed to be. They, they weren't motivated to be generous just because God's word told them to be generous. There was a more powerful motivator that they had. As I thought about different faces that I've known over the years who are godly and content and generous and long to be with the Lord, I realized they all shared in common what Paul calls a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So sincere and so pure that stuff couldn't hold a candle to their satisfaction in him. So these godly, content, generous believers didn't give because they were supposed to give. It was deeper than that. They gave because Jesus was their first and only love. And they gave because delighting in the Lord set them free from desiring more and more stuff. So they didn't love stuff. They didn't have to have it. It didn't define them. It didn't satisfy them because their satisfaction was totally in Christ. 
And so they gave because what they wanted most in life was to simply go home to be with the Lord. And so it was a deep satisfaction in Christ in realizing that, as the song says, Christ is enough for me. And I can give and give and give because I don't need this stuff. It doesn't make me happy. I don't have to have it. Number two, be prepared to die. It sounds like, as you know, teenagers would say, well, duh. Or it sounds like a line out of an action movie where the bad guy's holding a gun up to your head or something. I realize that. But I also realize I have to make these applications short so you have time to write them down before the keynote slide disappears on you. Here's why I put this down. God's rebuke of the fool in verse 20 should serve as a wake-up call to any unbeliever who doesn't know Christ and any believer who's grown apathetic in their faith. What if your soul is required of you tonight or tomorrow or next week? The statistics on death are staggering. One out of one people die. But, think about this, even fewer than one out of one know when they are going to die. But for some reason, there's this this assumption that we all make that, well, I'm guaranteed 74.6 years because that's the average lifespan of an American. No, 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 you're not. And so as a result, like, as sinners, we, we put off and we procrastinate either receiving Christ or maybe coming back to the Lord and doing business with Him and walking with Him because we think we've got forever. But we don't. We don't. I just can't help but wondering how many of you need to heed Jesus' warning that this night your soul is required of you, or this week, or this month, or later this year, your soul will be required of you. And so if you've not yet taken care of where you will spend eternity, I want to urge you to do that. I'm not asking whether you know about Jesus or know the gospel. I'm asking, have you actually repented of your sin, surrendered your life to Christ, and trusted in him alone for salvation? You can go to church for 30 years and still not do that. The scriptures teach that Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried and raised again three days later, and he did this so that anyone who surrenders their life to him will not have to spend eternity in hell for their sins, but instead receive the gift of eternal life. Now, if you believe you already know Christ, I would urge you to make sure you know him personally instead of just knowing about him. There are so many Americans that I fear know the gospel so well, they got the Sunday school answers down pat, but the gospel's not actually changed their heart. There's a huge difference. None of us has been promised tomorrow, so are you prepared to die? Well, 
One man who was prepared to die was Jonathan Edwards. He lived every day of his life knowing it could be his last. And it wasn't like some pop culture motto that you hear in the world today. Like, hey man, live like every day, like it's your last one. Like, go for it, bro. Like, you know, do this and do that and get everything, every experience, spend everything because you deserve it. No, 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 no. Jonathan Edwards was considered uh, to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest preacher in American history. He was an insightful theologian and a prolific author whose books are still studied by pastors and theologians today. As an anointed preacher, Edwards delivered one of the most famous sermons in American church history. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it in order to help his apathetic congregation understand they were absolutely lost without the grace of Christ. And, interestingly, the Lord used that sermon, along with a couple other gifted, anointed preachers, to bring about a revival in New England in the 1740s that's often referred to as the Great Awakening. Well, pastors know this, so I'll share this secret with you about preaching, and that is that the power doesn't come in preaching from the delivery or even necessarily the preparation of the message. The power in the preacher comes from his own individual walk with the Lord. And the sermon really is supposed to be an overflow of that intimate walk. And so this can be seen in Edward's life in a journal entry that he penned on Monday, February 3rd, 1724. It shows the perspective, the eternal perspective that Jonathan Edwards lived with. So he wrote this, Let everything have the value now which it will have on a deathbed. And frequently in my pursuits of whatever kind, let this question come to mind. How much? Shall I value this on my deathbed? And so I leave you with that question today. All the stuff you have in your life, the things that you maybe enjoy, and maybe some things that you love that you should just enjoy, what value will they have when you are on your deathbed? You need to figure this out because the salvation of your soul is more important than the worth of your wealth. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege and the blessing of growing up and living in one of the the wealthiest country in the world. Lord, we... We thank you for all the many, many blessings and privileges we get to enjoy. But at the same time, Lord, your word reminds us that those privileges and blessings and luxuries come at a cost. 
we face temptations that other believers in other parts of the world don't face. And that is, as Jesus showed us today, the temptation to love money and material possessions more than you. Father, if there is any stuff, material possessions, things in our lives that we love instead of enjoying, or that we love instead of you, would you please show us that by your Holy Spirit? And then, Lord, would you give us the wisdom to know whether we need to do what Jesus said, and that is if, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He was using hyperbole, obviously, but if there's something in our lives that causes us to not love you first, there is wisdom in maybe getting rid of it. Or would you just show us that? Is there anything we need to, to let go of? Because it's a distraction. It's an idol. Father, I, I just also want to pray for those that are here today that have been blessed financially. They have a lot of stuff. Lord, please, would you... Help them to heed Jesus' words, to, to watch out, to be on guard, to be on guard against covetousness, and to be generous with what you've given them. Lord, I also want to pray for those who, who struggle financially. May, there may be some here today who are on the lower, lower end of middle class, maybe even in the lower class of income strata. And those who don't earn a lot of money covet as well. They can look at the wealthy and long for that lifestyle and think that it's so much better and all life's problems would be solved if they just had that much money. Lord, please, would you help them to be content with what you've given them as well? And finally, Lord, would you help us all to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us? so that we can hear, well done, good and faithful servants, when we stand before you someday, and so that we can see the treasure we've laid up in heaven with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.